listening to a discussion born in the Christian ghetto. Hello, Johan. Let me add you now. Add as speaker. Invite as co-host. There we go. All right. Welcome, Black Horse. There we go. Uh, invite to speak. And then, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'll make you a co-host too. That way, we got three of us here. There you go. There oh, we, we may go. not have an. We may not have an audience, but we have a. Co <laughs> we have. Uh... We got one. Um, there you go. Yeah, Chris Burnett said he was going to come too. So, um, who's Chris Burnett? He is it Chris Burnett? Um, uh, let me just see if I get make sure I get the name right. Yeah, Chris Burnett. He um runs the Carl Stack Substack. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and he he had me on a while back and um said that uh, when I sent it out, he said, "Oh, I'll be there." So there you go. There we go. Um. Okay, we are recording, so we can start any time if we want to, and, and then others can um, re-listen to when we get, uh, when we're all done, if they want to re-listen to it. Um, so we are here talking about um, community and alternative community and building it and fostering it. Um, and, you know, the, the logic of it and why we do it. Um, and, uh, Maybe we let Johan start um, just introducing the topic to us. One of the things that spurred this conversation and why I wanted to have it with Johan is that um, he wrote a piece a while back um, about fostering an, a new alternative elite. And one of the points that Johan made is that it's not enough just to merely say, hey, we need new elites, but we need to give them a new and different incentive system um, other than the one of the regime and give them something, a goal to aspire to, um, something to build for, um, something that they will find rewarding that will entice them away from what they are currently doing um, towards working on this project of building um, parallel communities that can offer meaningful resistance to the regime. Hi, Kraptos. Hello. No, listen, it's, it's, it's fantastic to speak to you in person. We've been uh, moving in the same circles for a while. It is really good. I think yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Definitely. Um, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll give my two cents on, on what we're doing here. So, I wrote a very long time ago an article called uh, Dissidents with Elite Potential Must Join Liberal Organizations. And my point in that article was pointing out that um, the best companies at the moment for maturing talent, the best organizations, uh, tend to be very liberal. And there is an argument, in my view, for even if you are from a dissident disposition, uh, a Christian, a traditional Catholic, whatever it is, there is an argument to be made in terms of pure self-development to spend a period at one of these institutions. Um, I got some pushback on that article. Some people disagreed. Some people violently agreed and, and so forth. But one of the interesting lines of criticism I got was, well, this is a great shame if this is true because many of the people that are least able to flourish under you know, um, the sort of progressive indoctrination policies that a lot of these organizations have are the most intelligent because they are uh, able to perceive exactly what's going on. They have uh, these ideas about the way society should be and, and rather than the ideas which are being pushed onto them, they're more difficult to indoctrinate. And um, the, the argument that was put to me was, look, wouldn't it be great if 
instead of relying on these liberal organizations as um, sort of talent incubators, uh, even if it is only for a short period, what would it take to pull elites out of those um, sort of liberal machines, potential elites, young elites um, that are well disposed towards us and our political views, our, our sort of spiritual views of the world and so forth? What would it take to keep them and to build actual communities, ecosystems of businesses, organizations, uh, perhaps higher educational organizations and so forth. And so the piece that you're referencing was um, an attempt at, at beginning to hash out what would be necessary, the infrastructure that would be necessary to do that. Um, it included um, motifs around talent development, uh, prestige, recognition, um, recognition of the centrality of the mission as a motivating factor. Uh, for young individuals of this kind. Um, but anyway, so, so that was how um, I think I, I began thinking about this, this question of, of um, why, why dissident communities are necessary. Obviously, a dissident community uh, in the true sense, in the sense that you might think about the Amish or certain uh, Orthodox Jewish communities, uh, certain Mormon communities, um, and so forth, are, are much more well-rounded, holistic sets of institutions than just networks of businesses. Um, and so perhaps today we can get into, you know, why these dissident communities more broadly defined are, are necessary, what would be uh, the necessary constituent components of a belief system that could support um, an activity as radical as that. And, and you know, in, in my view, and I suspect yours, uh, faith is a necessary component of that, how to maintain the integrity of these, these networks and so forth. Yeah, and I mean, as I, I made the argument recently on Oran's show that, you know, that um, you you really, the, the technical administrative system is what it is. And as you say, there is a certain value moving and being in elite circles because you can learn things. Um, you can learn skills that they have. You can learn the ins and outs of how it works. Um and what it takes to succeed in these organizations and the reward structures. Um, but one of the things that, you know, Alul observed is that the, the very nature of the technical system as a fact and, and its internal logic and dynamic means that it becomes really difficult to wield it towards any other purposes than for its own ends, which typically tend to be progressive because of sort of the uh, the iterative nature of technique always want to be you know that sort of constant step-by-step -step improvement and and process working on that that sort of thing and so you, you either come to the conclusion either you have to sort of go the full ted kaczynski route and bring the whole system down um you know the end of modernity which is from a cost benefit perspective seems very unpalatable and i'm just you know i i don't think I'm not a utopian, so I not you know the cost benefit thing doesn't really work for me, and I I, I don't think it's a it's a proper Christian perspective. Um, that means then you sort of have to sort of look at so what's our alternative, and then door number three becomes very much a reality in a sense. We build a an alternate community that either waits until the regime fails and then is there to pick up the pieces, or perhaps is ready at a crucial time to do sort of a both and be there to pick up the pieces and maybe give it that final shove and push over, you know? Um, and yeah. yeah, so so then that for me is kind of the logic. And when you look at how the state has developed, it has set itself up as an ontological reality, uh, metaphysical, in a sense that it wants to, you know, it pushed Christianity out of the public realm um, and then assumed the, the the metaphysical reality that 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 God used to occupy in people's lives and so essentially we're fighting a religious war and so you you basically have to recognize it's sort of God versus Pharaoh you know the living God versus the usurper God and fundamentally the struggle becomes a religious battle and so you have to address it as such and really within the West the only um, meaningful, religious entity in that sense is Christianity. Um, and so it really becomes, a, in some ways, a battle between Christianity and the regime. And I think that's, for me, is how I have come to see it in that regard, um, however it plays out politically. And so that sort of centers, for me, then, you know, the building of community is around faith. But then there is, as you say, all these other issues as well, too. You know, Blackheart, you've had some thoughts on this before that, that you've shared 
with me in in a previous space and maybe you want to chime in too as well yeah i mean there's a couple of layers to this that i think we're underplaying first of all whether you want to or not uh, the regime is aggressively pushing people like us out of institutional power so if you want to take up your proper role as a, a leader in society you have no choice but to do so in a parallel community uh, you will not be allowed to play that role inside progressive institutions. Whether whether you think it would be good leadership development or not, you're not going to be allowed in. Um, so no, you don't get a seat at the table. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at Canada. It's functionally illegal to be a practicing Christian and be a member of many elite institutions. Yes. Um, I, you know, I was stupid enough not to know that when I was a teenager, but I know it now. Um, and so, like, the question of whether it would be better to participate in the elite institutions of our, our broad culture or not it is kind of an academic question uh, at this point. I, I suspect that the story is very similar in South Africa, where um, if you're of a certain ethnic makeup, uh, you're not allowed in, in official elite institutions, so you have to have your own, whether you want to or not. Um, this is increasingly the case... Um, in countries that are beginning to make the transition from sort of soft per soft persuasion in, in progressivism to hard persuasion in progressivism. Um, so that that's element number one. Element number two is, well, what's the fundamental problem with uh, the regime? Well, one of the fundamental problems with the regime is that the elites have no bond with their people. Um, and so why create uh, parallel communities? Well, one reason is to create a society where elites have a deep and spiritual bond with the people that they lead, um, which can only be forged through being of them and one with them. So you can't go and spend your life, spend 20 years working, you know, uh, working in Progland and then come back to your community and expect to share a deep spiritual bond and be able to lead them. That's not the way things work. You have to be of them and with them in order to have the kind of loyalty to demand the kind of sacrifices that will be needed in the years, years ahead. Um, so, and then reason number three is that participating in the broad culture, it's just impossible not to get it on you. Um, so even if you could bypass the, gate, the gatekeeping mechanisms and participate in, in prog culture, um, you would have to live your life, you know, as the uh, PMC, as uh, as a kind of green grocer, putting up the sign and, and hiding all day long. And it's just, it's impossible to do that, keep your integrity and raise your children in your own tradition. Um, so your parallel community, even if you're personally, emotionally capable of doing that, transmission to your children is a big problem so parallel community becomes essential in in that piece and then i think the interesting discussion is is to look at well parallelism is a new idea for preserving the indigenous cultures of the west um religious or otherwise uh, that's gone better and worse for different groups across the west and, and maybe it's interesting to look at um at some of the comparative successes and failures I think um, I think you're both exactly right to take this right to the heart of the matter straight away. Karapsos, when you pointed out that, as Alul says, there is no reworking of the current technical infrastructure to our advantage. This is a much more fundamental question than that because of the logic of the current technical infrastructure. And, and Black Horse, you know, when you talk about the centrality of spiritual leadership and the proximity of that leadership in spiritual terms to the people. One thing that immediately springs to mind um, that is kind of a curious little case study is right-wing opposition uh, to the modern movement for quote-unquote livable cities. Um, and I think that implicit in that, you know, on the surface, that sounds like an idea that elements of at least conservatives, if not the actual right-wing, might be amenable to, you know, these kind of uh, small communities in which you can walk around without the help of technology and you can know your neighbor and so forth. But I think a lot of the resistance to that senses that this is an attempt to rearrange technical, physical infrastructure without resolving and indeed completely ignoring the most fundamental issues of who is in your community, where they come from, 
what they believe. And if you don't resolve uh, those issues first, you worsen the problem. Um, because livable cities, you know, which remove infrastructure for cars, make it more difficult to network with the people who you actually care about, uh, who may be further away. And, you know, as infrastructure continues to degrade and the bizarre social engineering programs of the, of the regime continue, an essential protection for our way of life will be to physically convene with those uh, with whom we share the most and to carve out a place for, for, for those values which we hold most dear. Um, so completely agreed that fundamentally the first question to resolve is the spiritual one. What is your, what is your telos and not the technical one of how you are going to achieve this? Yes, that that makes you know really good sense too, and and then layering that because you know you, you, we talk about a different organizing principle, you know, so we're we're, we're core, we're building it around renewed spiritual values. Um, you know, there there is the sense that both on left and the right, um, as Augusto Del Noci talks about, that that both left and right, so both your Marxist and your fascist. Um, root themselves in a post-Nietzschean world, right? So you have two utopian-type dreams. One is to sweep away the, the current order or tradition, and you have a future utopia. The other is to build a, a sweep away the current order and reach back into the past at some sort of past utopia and reinstantiate that. Both end up doing so largely through technical and policy means. So they use the same mechanisms, and then you know, because of the nature of technique, end up being functionally the same thing. I know people have a hard time struggling with that, but fascism and Marxism in the end end up being the same thing. Um, just their, their, their definition of utopia is different, right? And so what Del Noce argues is that what we're really looking for is to find a different source. And he says, well, what is that source? It, it really comes back to a living relationship with a living God. It's not sort of Christianity as, you know, formalism, um, you know, going to church or whatever, but he's talking about really, in a sense, a, a mystical connection with a living God, that people begin to actually reconnect with God, but they do so within the confines of, Christi uh, of Christian tradition, right? So it's rooted with something, it's grounded in something, it's something living, and then this gives you a new basis, recognizing the division between because it's not utopian that the original sin that we that we have we can only achieve again, so so much in this world. You're discussing a, a particular mechanism of governing a particular parallel community. I would assume that the the struggle of this space is to talk about the challenges of separating the challenges of separation in order well, to that establish. Was like, yeah, and that was I guess which is sort of a, a long lead up into the sort of the next thing because you're not then as this 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 sort of new source you're not offering the same rewards that the technical system does which is great at providing power and money and so in some sense you have to conceive of how to attract people where power and money are not your two main allures right um and, and so that's perhaps really the challenge that way. Is it in a sense that you're giving them a shared vision of building something? Um, but Well, I mean, you, you have to recognize that in order to succeed in building parallel communities, you have to attract high-status young men. And in order to do that, you have to offer them the, the opportunity to be at the top of a dominance hierarchy that rewards them. That's how young men work. That's how they've always worked. That's how they always will work. Uh, and yes. so... The, the issue is, what does the regime do in order to get them there? Well, it offers them money and it offers them uh, political power inside the global system. Well, you can't do that. No. But, but you, you can still offer them status. And you can offer them status in all sorts of ways that the uh, regime is incapable of offering them status. Uh, my, my favorite illustration of this is that, sure, um, Sure, Jeff Bezos can be the richest man in the world, have a hundred billion dollars, but he can't stop his ex-wife from taking twenty billion of it. <laughs> sure, Elon Musk can be the world's richest man, but he still has, you know, <laughs> still has children being raised to hate him. Right? There are things that we can offer um, 
And so to this end, if you are interested in building parallel community, you should actually spend a great deal of time talking about the ways in which uh, the status offered by the, the regime is, um, it's like chasing after smoke, you can't actually hold it because they demand that you don't have authority even in your own home, much less in your own. Uh, like it's, it's illusory at this really deep level, right? Yes. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of age-old stories that, you know, there's the one that Jesus tells of, of the man who builds, you know, who says to himself, I'm going to build another barn to hold all of my grain. And the Lord says, well, that's good, good for you to have those plans, but tonight, you know, your life is in my hands. <laughs> and, um, and, and, but the, the question, I guess, then really becomes, you know, how do you cast that vision? Like, and, and you know, how do you give, put meat on the bones of, of, of what that vision is going to look like in a sense of like, what are we actually trying to build, you know? Yeah. And, and what are these young men who are going to be at the top of this hierarchy? What are we going to be asking them to, to build and make? And one of the questions I asked in our notes with, with, um, with Johan before coming up is, um, you know, do, do do we, because we're organizing as, as Christians, in a sense, you know, um, because of the current political system, does this necessarily politicize it, you know, or does this give us an opportunity for for Christians to unite under a banner? Um, and, you know, does the, the, the political become a catalyst for Christian union? And then if we're building a fully formed community, what are the pieces that we then need to build a, a society that is in the world, but not of the world, but yet is a full and complete society? <laughs> so there's a lot on that question. There um, is. <laughs> um, well, I would say, you know, first and foremost, the thing that sprung to mind when you were discussing Marxism and fascism and their unsuitability for this moment, the first thing to notice is that those are sort of totalizing ideologies, right? So they, they attempt either within the confines of the national state or within the confines of the international workers' movement uh, to totalize the, the uptake of their, their ideology. That's very clearly unsuitable for the moment um, because we're not going to capture the totality of the system, especially with the radical beliefs of the kind we have. And so it is about forming separate communities, and that's one of the reasons that I think a faith of some kind, whether Christian or not, is going to be an, an essential component of this. One of the things that I think is, is very useful about, um, you know, I'll, I'll discuss Christianity because that's my faith, but, but you could interpret this more broadly, about following a faith of this kind, is that all right-wing movements like ours are fundamentally anchored around hierarchy and order. And if um, you require a fundamentally separate hierarchy to be set up, uh, Christianity helps very much because you immediately out of the box have uh, institutions and an understanding of values that allows you to orient that hierarchy. Um, and, you know, if, if you think about what we're actually seeing on the ground here, it is difficult to ignore the fact that relig religiosity of some form will be necessary when the successful communities of this kind that have already been launched, I would, I mean, I'm happy to, to hear counterexamples, but, you know, the Amish. No, they're all. They're all real. They're all religious communities, and they're all radical religious communities. Right. Exactly. And I, I think that religiosity has a particular advantage, exactly as you say, in unlocking radicalism within the boundaries of something that can be controlled and held together. Um, you know, in some sense, the more radical the faith, the better. When embarking on a project as as uh, as grand as this, the formation of an entirely new community. But you are still going to have to maintain community integrity. One of the really interesting things that Kraptos spoke about in one of the pieces that he suggested as pre-reading for this um, was that fundamentally a large part of the project is necessarily, in order to support community, going to be the reimposition of bonds on people, obligations, duties that they have simply been freed from under liberalism. And so the question of how to summon uh, radical energy of the kind of people that will give their lives to in a structured and mutually supportive way is an incredibly difficult one to solve, I would say, outside the bonds of, of organized faith. 
Yes, because you're basically, you know, to, to use an example, um, one of the places where you see this type of, of thing developing is, is perhaps in the monastery, right? Where you submit your spiritual guidance to the abbot. And, and you know, there's a clear order, rule, and hierarchy. And the, the, there's a very clear purpose of intent. Um, and, and as you say, Johan, this, these are ideas that, you know, when you're raised on a culture of unchosen bonds, unlimited speech, unlimited action, where people tell you, you know, what happens in my own bedroom is nobody's business, is a massive culture shock. Um, you know, to come in to say that, listen, you are going to, to become a part of this project, um, you're going to be asked to find your place in the hierarchy submit to it and this is a good thing for your own benefit and for ours um and and for people to embrace that is 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 a massive culture shift and and you know you 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 start small but the the thing is that we want this thing to grow to become substantial enough that the the regime deems us a threat Right, exactly. Yeah, no, and one one of the things I, I really liked about your article on the loss of community was that it was completely unflinching in tying the loss of community to the erosion of duties, rules, and obligations that that underpin the dynamics of those communities. Um, and if you want a community, then you must accept commensurate limitations. Okay, but but all of this discussion remains about the characteristics of the community you're trying to build. I mean, obviously, we want to build a a community that reimposes. Uh, bonds of hierarchy on the people within it because all healthy communities have those those bonds right yes obviously we we want to re we want to create a community that has a a dedication to uh, has a dedication to god the question is how you have a system that is explicitly designed to deracinate particularly young men from from their community and pull them in as satraps of the regime, right? So the question is, how do you begin constructing uh, a parallel community that prevents their loss and instead presses them into service of their own people, right? That bonds them in, a, in an irrevocable way uh, to, that, to that community. The question is not exactly what will that community look like. That that's a question that actually properly belongs to the people who form that community. It's not a question. You don't actually start with a vision of what the community will look like. You start by collecting the men you can collect, right? Yes, because it it has because again the the regime is all system, right? It's you know you can't and that's the well, the, the challenging I mean, thing because the if defining, you have another plan, you're just another systems developer, right? The, the defining character of the uh, communities that we want to create is the spiritual bond between people and leadership class. And it's and so, grounded organic nature. That That's right. And so in order to do that, you need to think first about who are the people that you're, who, who are the people that you're trying to lead? How are you going to prevent their, how are you going to create a leadership class that is suitable for that community and make sure that they become bonded to their client class how are you going to make that community durable against both efforts at deracination and direct and and shocks right um, how are you going to make sure that when things get economically difficult for for example whites in south africa that they don't just leave and go to the united states or somewhere else how do you ensure that they that at a generational level they continue these are the actual questions you're dealing with rather than the questions of what the system specifically will look like. Well, here was something too, um, like as Charles Haywood in his a recent piece was talking about, um, I guess it comes to the question is, is what does the regime do in a sense? The, the, what's the trade-off for the power and the money? Is that it alienates you from God and it alienates you from the physical world? Right. So in a sense, I guess I'm just well, I mean, that's the, old, than... that's the old trade. But then the new trade is not only does it do that, but you get to genetically die and you get to, uh, you know, watch your your life become this like. I, I mean, 
does does Elon Musk have a beautiful life? No. No, I don't want that life. Right? Um, and so how do you keep your people in? Well, that actually got a lot easier in the last 20 years. Now the question is, how do you bond, how do you rebond these people groups that have survived into modernity with their natural elites? How do you educate their natural elites? How do you start laying the foundations for institutions to represent them and defend those communities? So, yeah, so go ahead. This is interesting to me, I mean, so because this sounds like the first major point of disagreement. You, know, you are thinking at a far more macro level than I am in you know what I'm doing in my own life. You're thinking about saving a people, which implies the coherency of a people that I actually don't think we have in many countries in the West or even in many regions in countries in the West. Um, so when I want to start a small community, a parallel community, I really mean start, you know. I, yeah. I don't want to attempt to retie the... Yeah, uh, whereas Cryptos and I are talking about a couple of specific communities that exist that have survived modernity so far and are basically leaderless. So, and so we're talking about rebuilding them. So, so here's, here's why I draw out this distinction, though. It's that naturally this is an incredibly challenging product, uh, project. Uh, and I think the danger of both starting the question very big, which is reattaching existing communities to their elites, while also drawing in the, the huge number of questions that we'll have to be contended with, uh, everything from economic to geographic to identity issues all at once, um, makes this seem like uh, a project of almost unassailable scale. Uh, and that's why what I was, what I was attempting to outline um, a few minutes ago was just outlining at first the very high-level universal structural factors that you're going to mm. contend against. And actually, exactly as you say, it's going to be a set of incentive issues uh, for people to participate in the system, and it's going to be a set of uh, obligations and costs, which you will also have to, to navigate. Um, and I have some thoughts as, as to what those are, but I want to make sure, sure. we're on the same, same page. Well, yeah, no, it, it's good, because I, I tend to be, I think, somewhat in between. As somebody who's grown up in a very distinct ethno-religious community that, as Black Horse says, um, is, lacks high-level leadership... Um, I, I, part of me wonders whether well, it also lacks confidence in itself, which is the well, other, that's true. like that, that's the other really big issue with these communities that have survived into modernity. Um, when they've come into conflict with the, the, the progressives that lead the, the nations that they're in because they haven't had a leadership class because they, they have no confidence to bargain on their own behalf. Right. Yeah, well, see, and in this sense where what I think I hear Johan talking about is to say, hey, listen, okay, good. You've got some of these these, these existing communities that's, that, that, that's great, but, but really we need to sort of take a step back and perhaps begin um, not with the existing communities, but to find people within, within those communities and begin quietly networking them together um, if I, if I'm reading you right, Johan, and then just slowly from the ground up, then it, it emerges from these early networks. If that if that's if that's if that's correct, I, I'm saying you have to run this like a startup, not like turning around a large business. So, yes. you know, for example, if you look at someone like um, Doug Wilson, right in Moscow, Idaho. Mm -hmm. um, for those not familiar, he's a he's a conservative. Yeah. Uh, pastor um who others will frankly know better than me but i'm i'm aware of the high high level uh story of his he landed in a small college town right which is overwhelmingly liberal well with but he didn't land there his father established the church there with the direct intent like 40 years ago right, so you're exactly. looking when you see doug wilson you're looking 40 years into the project but but that's that's my point, right? Which is that he didn't land in a town. Or his father didn't land in a town, in which there was a natural class of Christians that were just waiting to be reunited with leadership, 
he landed in a sense in hostile territory, right? So he had to start very small, a very a very particular germ, and grow that over decades and decades into a flourishing community, almost out of nothing. It wasn't a retethering of a lost Christian community to a, the local um, sort of elites that they they had been disconnected from. It was a uh, a project literally from the ground up. And I would observe that the same pattern has been repeated. You know, if you looked at the original Jewish farmsteaders in Palestine. They started incredibly small, and it was this gradual wave that built up, um, you know, and so on and so forth. But but I think that um, my recommendation really would be to start even at the level of a single church. It wouldn't be to, to embark on any near-term time frame, absent a really large revolution in civilization that was a sort of civilizational destabilizing effect um, that had people desperately looking for new leadership in a way that I, I frankly don't think many people are at the moment, even if they feel something is very off. Yeah, it just, you know, it underscores just listening to all of us talk, you know, and, and we do talk about this and even if we have a sense of it, and even if we've experienced some of it, um, what a daunting project it is. And not to say that we shouldn't begin, um, but it does underscore in a sense, you know, the, the point that Heidegger makes about the technical system of just how in framing it is. That, um, you know, it's almost like within the technical system, you know, sort of we live and move and have our being these days, right? And we're really trying to... Um, in a sense, break free, ground ourselves, and plant something and begin again. And it's like, I know for myself, it's like, wow, just the whole thing just feels very overwhelming. You know, it's beyond me to do. But somehow, somewhere, we have to start with something and plant somewhere. And begin, like you say, the, the example of Doug Wilson, who's done it, you know, who's built an alternate community. It can be done. Um, and then they can be networked together. Um, but, you know, a clarity of vision and, um, and, and, and a real understanding of, 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 of what we're about and why we're there. Right. I mean, I think, I think that, that upfront question of who we are, what we believe, frankly, what our dogmas are, what we're doing this for, what our mission is, is, is essential to lay out in, in ahead of time. And the reason for this is, you know, I think one of the key mechanisms for exactly as Black Horse says, one of the primary challenges you're going to come up against is the discomfort of joining the community is going to cause gradual erosion and descent of some of your most valuable people outside of the community. So the question is, what are the, the confines, what are the structures you can put in place um, in order to prevent that from happening. And in my opinion, part of that is going to be having a set of central inviolable understandings that define the borders of this community. And it's going to be a set of beliefs. Um, and if you excuse yourself or if you attempt to excuse yourself from even one of these beliefs, um, that's fine, but everyone must understand you're leaving. And conversely... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of, of that's right. The center of building something like this is church discipline, right? So you violate the sacred rules of the community, you're gone. The end. No discussion. Yeah, and and, and like I, I do, I definitely agree. And you know, um, for all that people knock on on Rod Dreher and and so forth, I I think that one of the things that he did get really right in his book, The Benedict Option, was to highlight the the rule of Benedict as an establishment of a political order within the monastery. As Johan says, an inviolable political order. You go in, you take a vow, right? And then you join the order. And, you know, there's even that, that waiting period, the, the, the novitiate, right? Where, you know, you go in and, and the question is, is this really for you? You know, do you really have what it takes to become part of, of, of this thing that is being built? And if you do, then fine, you'll be allowed to take your, your vows. But others will evaluate your commitment to the project, and then they will either, you know, allow you to pass in or that. And then, you know, if you leave, then you leave and you're done. You know, you're out. Right. And, and you know, and there's also, again, as, as you were saying, Black Horse, like real, you know, discipline, discipline becomes a thing. And, and but not only that, even if you have like a network of communities. And this is, I think, one of the problems that we have today is even if you don't have like a universal global structure, you have a series of network communities. If you join our community and you walk away, 
you don't get to go to the next town and join their community. Yeah. Well, one of the issues here is prestige mechanisms that are not connected to the regime, right? So why is it that church discipline doesn't have the kind of impact? Um, I mean, put, a, put yes. aside the, the fact that it's not well-practiced, but why, why, why does nobody fear disobeying the leaders of, of their own community? Well, because they're not worried about going to hell if they get cast out of the church. Well, there's that issue, but also they're not worried about, like, if I get cast out of the church, then there there are very few social consequences to that in the broad culture. Yes, exactly. Uh, Really good point. Whereas if you live in a, like, Kryptos and I have the advantage of living in a community where, uh, you know, there's pretty high in-group preference. Uh, if you violate the rules of the community, um, your it entire gets very social network fast. Yeah, you lose yes, your whole social very, network. You you got to go somewhere else. You got to go live in Toronto or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not an you, understatement. So, um, and that, that that's the way that it has to be. You have to be able to. Otherwise, you can't. The community can't hold hold together, right? Yeah. Um, no, exactly. And I, I think about this from the perspective of, you know, in my, my sort of startup version of this, you're, you're actively attracting, you're attempting to attract new people in to move into your geography to, to commit to the project. And frankly, you know, rigorous standards allows you to keep the wrong people out. Um, yeah, exactly. Yes. I, you know, I've been to some events in our sphere broadly defined, and it's a mixture of the most fantastic people, really sharp young guys, and guys that just like, they get absolutely smashed on the first night of the event, like embarrassingly drunk. And you need to be able to differentiate between the two. And that has so many knock-on effects, you know. For example, regarding prestige, if you only let demonstrably excellent people in, that has this knock-on effect where everyone associates your sort of brand, for lack of a better word, with that yeah. level of excellence. And then it becomes an incredibly prestigious thing to be accepted well, into your order. Well, this is how Beowulf built what, you know, Sargon called the most pre- prestigious right-wing conference in, in, in England, right? By only accepting really excellent people. Yes. I think uh, BT has something that he wants to say. Um, did you want to chime in, BT? Yeah, I, I was just going to hop in with something here really quick. Um, first of all, it is nice to hear all of your guys' voices. Um, but, but second of all, just kind of hopping on the subject here, um, isn't one of the things that we're evaluating here as far as, as far as building alternative communities was one of them is that the prestige, the prestige that the regime offers, like some of it is real and some of it is fake. So like, for example, in the article that we talked about that Johan wrote, which is a very good article, it's behind a paywall. Someone in the comments asked about that, but I I will try to get a link after this really quickly. Um, But he was, you know, one of the things Johan is mentioning is he works, you know, high up in these, uh, how would you, how would you say professional business organizations? And some of them actually bring material and economic wealth into the country, but there are other things the regime offers that are completely fake, like like being a professor at a university that has no prestige anymore. And so um, part of building our prestige, shouldn't it be uh, building our prestige in comparison to the regime's prestige? Right, exactly. And and you can also go one level down, right? Which is like, why do men want prestige? What are the rewards that they're angling for? And an example of that would obviously be money, but also an example of that would be women, right? You want to be a perfect woman, broadly defined. And so one of the advantages that these communities, if set up properly, uh, will have working in their favor is that <laughs> their women will not be of the kind that you see so often uh, on the modern street. Yeah, there, and there's really no you know, there's no really no elegant way to say that though. But it it is you know that we often joke. Um, you know the the university that I went to, Christian College. Um, you know people often talk about going there to get their MRS degree, right? Your MR and your MRS, right? Yeah. So, um, and and that you know th- th- there's this nothing is, wrong with that. But, but no, there isn't. No, and, the, and the issue is that it's an institute. The issue is that there there should also be an elite institution, and there isn't. That's right. right? But and, and the thing is that the reward for this, though, like you know, the, we talk about how much do we talk today about you know family formation, um, total fertility rate, 
And if you can look in the community and say, like, like guys, girls, come here, get married, build a family. And we've put in place all of the we put in place all of the pieces necessary again to make that what, happen as a reward. We've now discussed what we started the space with. Like, so what are the rewards you can offer? Well, one of them is you can reward is you can offer the opportunity to form genuine uh, genuine families. So there's one thing you can offer to people. You can also offer them the opportunity to participate in genuine male hierarchy. There's an, another thing you can offer. You can also offer them an opportunity for genuine, um, for, for legacy that continues on for more than one generation. Okay. There's another thing you can offer them. So we're going down the list of uh, the, the ways in which you can persuade uh, the excellent young men who will form the cornerstones of any such parallel community that they should participate there and not become, and not be sublimated into the broad culture. Right. And in some ways, this is easier than it has ever been because the broad culture is declining in quality and declining in its ability to, be, to give rewards. Hey, do you mind if I jump in right now? Go ahead. So the reason why I'm interested in this conversation is, well, first of all, I work for a right wing organization. Right. You're talking about all these organizations and values. But more importantly, um, you're talking about like all this high level stuff about communities and building communities and how to govern society basically. Um, but from a more like individual pragmatic level, not to make it about myself, but I'm feeling very lost right now because I'm, I left Canada to find somewhere new to build a life basically, but there's no obvious answer to me. So I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you were me, what, what country would you go to? Well, I, you know, my, my view is you go to the geography in order to enhance the bandwidth of a connection you already had. You, you don't pick the geography before the belief system. Um, so I, this is going to sound very trite and unhelpful, but you need, um, my advice would be, you know, if I was going to make a major international move, I would want to know exactly where I was moving and why. Um, more than that, I would want confidence uh, that my beliefs were genuinely aligned with the people that I was moving there with. You know, I, I had a friend, for example, that had very romantic notions about living in the countryside. Um, and he believed that this place he'd be moving to was this wild wilderness, you know, sort of think Montana, Yellowstone, all that stuff. But instead, it was a small agricultural land with smaller uh, Republicans. And he felt incredibly isolated because he had nothing in common with these people, even though it was politically speaking, a step closer from the big city um, to, to where he was politically. And so there's that primary question, and I, this is not going to be helpful if you're not religious, but I would definitely think about this in where is the purest form of my belief system expressed? Yeah, well, one thing that the country that probably makes most sense for me is like Poland, <laughs> but that's so far from my family and I don't like really want to learn Polish and I feel like if I did move there I wouldn't really fit in so I don't know maybe I think maybe a red state might make more sense I don't I don't know this is something I'm struggling with right now well and maybe coming from a different perspective Chris it and I, and I get that because I was one of these kids that that moved away in part because I, I you know felt a call to into the ministry and that usually means leaving home Right. So I left home to go to school, crossed the border and studied in the States, then came back to Canada, but never really came home. And then about a decade later, when it was clear that ministry was taking a like a real terrible toll on me and the family and so forth, that I, I left the ministry. And then you have a question of like you were facing, where do I go? Right. And so we really liked the Christian school that the kids were in, but we really didn't know anybody there. Right. Um, and again, it was close to the church that I was leaving. So, you know, do you really get away then? Do you make a break then from what from the situation that you're leaving? And so we ended up deciding to um, come to a city where, you know, my wife's sister lives, um, her best friend at the time lived. And her parents had just recently moved from the hometown closer to the sister um, just because that, you know, and so... I had no idea what work was going to provide for me. 
but we made the choice to root ourselves and anchor ourselves in family and then figured that the Lord would provide um, financially for us. And and that ended up for us being the right decision that way in terms of how to anchor ourselves. And, and then now we've, you know, 20 years later have, have you know, um, I don't know if we've rooted ourselves in the community, but our kids are now like very much rooted in this community, which is really yeah. kind of the goal. I mean, this is what I was getting at with creating like a spiritual bond between you and a people, between a leadership class and a people. This is not like a two-year project where you go and plant yourself somewhere new and then everything's going to be okay. That's just not how that works. Um, you're going to need to, if you're, I mean, I, I come from, a, I was born into a, a community in, of Anglo-Canadians that just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so if you're going to join uh, a, a new community in a deep and profound way, you're talking about like a 20-year investment in a particular people, a particular place. You're probably going to have to marry into the community. You might, like, there are fundamental, um, this is not something you're going to accomplish quickly. And so you you need to make very deliberate uh, choices. And not only that, they're not going to accept you immediately as one of their leaders. It, that's not the way this works, and it shouldn't be the way it works. No, you're probably still the new guy 20 years later, but your kids that's are right. okay. You know, your kids well, might be okay. And so, like, when you're thinking about uh, either founding or entering into one of these communities, you need to understand that you're coming in as an outsider. Um, whether that's fair or not, that's that's the way it is, right? Well, and you look at that, uh, sorry, the, the Doug Wilson thing, like, you know, he's taking over something that his father started 40 years ago. And now it's 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 bearing fruit of a seed that was planted 40 years ago. But go ahead and interrupt to somebody. No, I was going to say, you know, um, in some sense, the richer a community you're moving into is uh, necessarily the more alien it is, right? Because it's more particular, it's more authentic, it's more rooted in, in a place that you haven't grown up. And so in some sense, you know, the richer the thing that you're reaching out towards, the more you must want it because the greater the barriers to overcome will be. Those of us that have grown up in cities and have sort of traveled, quote unquote, all over the world, but really just been to major metropolises all over the world, sometimes underappreciate just how alien a place five miles out can actually be if it's, if it's functioning properly as it should be. Um, and so in some sense, to overcome all the costs that will be associated with this transition, exactly as Black Horse and Kraptor said, you need an over-romantic vision of what you're moving into such that you can deal with that pain uh, and that isolation, especially if you're a writer that's sitting alone. You know, you're not joining a company. Um, you're sitting alone in your office or your WeWork or whatever every day writing. You need an incredibly romantic vision and an enduringly romantic vision of where you're moving to and why you are moving there in order to, to make that incredibly long-term and deep investment to overcome those barriers. I guess I don't have that vision. <laughs> One way that I'm thinking of going about it is um, I'm trying to find a wife, but I'm not sure if it makes sense to like find a wife and move to where she is or like move somewhere, plant my roots, and then like once you have roots, it's much easier to find somebody. These are there's no there's no real answers to these questions. Like I'm I don't have the vision that you're talking about, so I get, <laughs> I have to try to figure out how to find a vision. But it 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 but it's good though, Chris, that you you ask the question though, because you're not the only one who has this question, right? And I I have a similar question, but in different ways, in a sense of like I'm part of one of these communities, and yet I still struggle with the idea of, you know, how do we found the community as as currently constituted isn't resisting the regime, so to speak, right? Not actively or consciously. If it's doing, it's doing by accident. And so this question of either you start something separate or you awaken the people that are there, but having, you know, worked on institutional change um, in, in, as one of the reasons why I left ministry is that, you know, institutional change is hard, right? And especially if you have a community with a certain kind. So even in my situation, I get the sense that even anchored in a traditional ethno-religious community, that there's still the prospect of you're going to have to branch out and start something on its own, 
Um, and like as as Johan says, something with you know high barriers or entry, high values that is able to offer rewards um, and so forth. But at, at a certain point in time, we have to begin to to talk about it, so that way we can sort of fix in our mind, like okay, what are we doing, right? And I think that this is why in a discussion like this is so very important, even among a handful of us, is that it gets the topic out there, and and I think it's something that we. I think is worthwhile revisiting again and again. Um, and then, you know, filtering out through the networks, the existing networks that we have, because somebody will catch the vision. And then, you know, as I say, it, we're looking at probably um, a multi-generational project, right? And that's, I think, the way that we have to conceive it. This is not a five-year startup or a three-year startup. This is a multi-generational project that will begin and will bear fruit for our grandchildren, hopefully. Well, one thing to hop in here really quick, it being a multi-generational project, there's really no way to make a multi-generational project and just have it be a bunch of people who have, you know, vaguely right-wing beliefs or Christian beliefs even in common. The best way to do it is through the family. So just to give an example, like, you know, I, I'm from Washington State. I'm somewhere else right now, but I'm from Washington State. And, you know, for me, like, I, I would never leave Washington, even though it's, it's politically almost as bad as Canada. But it's like I'm 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 there to build my life there with my family, with my parents, and with my siblings, and hopefully with my future wife. And so it, it's much easier to build communities if you have a familial aspect to it. Like if there's four generations and they've lived in one town for you know years, then it makes it much easier to create these alternative communities. The fam the family is the easiest way to do this. So if your family's not on board with like Christianity and, you know, right-wing beliefs, vague, at least vaguely right-wing beliefs or sentiments rather, uh, then it's, it's going to be much harder to build a giant multi-generational project like this. Yeah, that's kind of my situation. My family are all like far-left Canadians. <laughs> I, I, moved, uh, I moved to Europe like a couple months ago or like, a, I don't know, a month ago. And I think the first thing I realized is that I don't think it really makes sense for me to settle in Europe like um just if for no other reason it's my parents are in north america yeah and so like it kind of makes more much more sense for me to be in a like red state in america just so like i can be near my parents yeah well you have a tough job and so i think what our friend lafayette lee would say is to become the patriarch of your family which is a giant undertaking obviously and you know not that i'm in a position to give advice but i feel like that's what he would say if he was here which is that if you if you don't have that community, you, you kind of have to pray and and create it. Um, now, I, I for those that um, Johan and I had talked about this, but I do have some time restraints, and I have to head out in about two or three minutes. Um, I'm wondering, Johan, did you have a final word that you would like to offer to everybody um, before we head out? <laughs> um... No, well, I, you know, I think, I think um, Big Tuna's um, reference to the patriarchy is the right one. This is a, a really grand mission ahead of all of us. Uh, yeah. I think, Chris, you know, one, one thing that I would advise against is finding a woman and moving to her. Um, because what all of us are called to do in this situation is really to be leaders and founders and pioneers, uh, mm. and to be patriarchs in the fullest sense of the word. And by, you know, you're slightly mixing up your, your decision stack by moving, I'm moving to the woman at the, at the front of that. Um, so I think that's, that's probably the wrong, the wrong um, mindset to pursue. Instead, it should be one of, you know, the, the sort of boldness of taking risks, um, of going out into uncharted territory, of putting yourself on the line uh, and setting up a project that might fail. It might fail spectacularly. It might hurt other people when it fails because you brought them with you. Um, but these are the risks that, that this, uh, this situation uh, calls for us to take. And, and we just need a good enough reason to take them and a good, um, a good mission, a good sense of service as to what we're actually trying to achieve. Well, again, thank you, Johan, for making time. I know with the time difference, this has been a challenge, but it's good. And I, I really think um, I'd like to do this again sometimes. I think we just we really just got started on the whole topic. And I think now that we've said some things, it will help us to think further on this and maybe do some writing and then um, come back and revisit this again um, down the road sometime. And thank you to everybody who has um, showed up and listened. And unfortunately, we couldn't. Um, it's just hard in a space to open up to questions and so forth. Um, so 
Um, that may be one of these things that we'll have to work on and address in the future is, is how to open up to more broadly to, to just general questions. Um, but anyways, again, this will also be for those that wish to leave in just because the time it takes to download and, and to reformat it and everything in two or three days, probably it will show up on my Substack, seeking the hidden thing um, for those that would like to listen to the full thing that maybe missed the first half or so forth. Anyways, thank you and thank you all guys and um, we will see you later. Thank you.